0: Welcome into to another edition of the Duck Territory podcast post-game report. And this is a couple days after, just because it was not a very good setup for us to record this podcast at Research Stadium. Uh, it's a very small press box, and there's not a lot of space for us to get uh, room to do this post-game. So we're doing it on Monday, so apologies for the late couple of days. But it gives us an opportunity to kind of digest on this win a little bit more Oregon wins 55 to 15. Uh the Ducks scored three straight scores uh in the first half. And I shouldn't say three straight, but but they had three early first half touchdowns uh to take a 21 nothing lead and then Washington State kicked a field goal with 33 seconds to go in that first half to make it 21-13 and then outtrotted uh Taylor Shuck the true freshman quarterback. And at the time it was, oh, maybe Oregon's just trying to get him some game reps. And then we found out at halftime that Justin Herbert was hurt. Didn't return in the second half. Didn't, he showed up on the field, but he wasn't dressed. He was in just regular street clothes, sweatpants, sweatshirt. Uh, and the Ducks pers- proceeded to score. What was it? Four rushing touchdowns on the ground. They also got a, uh, Thomas Graham interception return early in the fourth quarter, which basically was the backbreaker for that one. Uh, and the Ducks walked out of Research Stadium with a 55-15 victory on the day. Uh, second straight win against Oregon State. They had uh, their first win in Research since, I think, 2013 or 2014. Right. And the Ducks improved to 8-4. and four and they now wait their bull fate, and it was kind of a game where I think they did what they were supposed to do, and that was dominate Oregon State on both sides of the ball.
1: Yeah, and, and the running game was simply, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Oregon runs for almost 400 yards, both Travis Dye and C.J. Verdell uh, nearly get to 200 apiece. I think the stat was that this is the first time in Oregon history that both more than one running back for Oregon has had 180 yards or more in that football game. So that's significant, and the freshman running back really stepped in there, and, and it was a situation where Oregon State knew exactly what was coming every play. Braxton Burmeister, we mentioned Tyler Shuck replaced for at the half, I'm sure. Anyone listening to this podcast know that Braxton Burmeister played the entire second half. Burmeister attempted just two passes, did not complete a pass until... I believe about six minutes left in the fourth quarter. So he played basically a quarter, more than a quarter and a half without even really completing a pass. And Oregon was still able to move the ball up and down the field, score at will against a really bad Oregon State defense. But I think if you're an Oregon fan, you you can at least go, Oregon State might be terrible. They might might be the worst defense Oregon has faced in certainly all season and maybe in a couple years. At the same time, Oregon did exactly what they needed to do, which was just pound the rock, pound the rock, pound the rock. It one play, I think, that it ran it 13 or 14 straight times. A lot of the run plays look very similar, um, and Oregon's basically just running the, a, a, maybe a, various, a small variation of the same play over and over <laughs> Crystal
0: Ball says it was a different play, but from up above, it looks very it looked, similar like the untrained eye. Yeah,
1: and so, uh, but yeah, Oregon, Oregon wins this game handily. I, I think you could probably make an argument if you're an Oregon State fan that this one hurts a little bit more just because... Oregon, you know, last year had Justin Herbert, and they won by 59 points. This year, they do not have Justin Herbert in the second half, and it was an 18-point game at the half. And at one point in the second half, Oregon led by 46 points. Oregon scored 28 consecutive points in the second half at one point. And um, really dominated this game from start to finish on both sides of the ball, like you said. I think the, the run defense was exceptional. Jamar Jefferson entered the game... Uh, with 1,300 and I think about 20 yards rushing on the season. He had 64. He had had multiple 100 yard games, multiple 200 yard games. Oregon really bottled him up. And, and so that was, that was significant. And, and again, you mentioned the turning point being the Thomas Graham pick. I think another big one was the Oregon yes. State triple option or whatever it was, double reverse Versed. pass thing. Um, <laughs> that just totally backfired. The ball ends up being squirted into the air. Gus Cumberland recovers it and Oregon, gets the ball like a 25-yard line. Oregon State had had some momentum to that point. they just scored um, a touchdown pass. It, earlier in the third quarter, they'd gotten an Oregon stop. It felt like they had figured some stuff out. At that point, the game was, I think, only a three-score game, so it wasn't totally over. Um, and yet, they turned it over there, and after that it was really one thing's opened up, and Oregon just completely dominated in, in every facet of the game from there. Um, and, you know, I, I think, if you're again, if you're Oregon – It's been a tough—it's been an up-and-down season. They finished with eight wins. I think you take it. I think you feel pleased with the way they finished the season after losing three out of four. They beat Arizona State, who's going to be bowl-eligible and one of the top teams in the South last week. And a not overly impressive game. At least it was impressive for a portion and then not so impressive for another. But this was probably Oregon's most complete game in terms of start-to-finish domination. All season, another game that you would probably throw in there might be the Stanford game yeah. if you took away the last 12 minutes of the game. <laughs> but from start to finish, this is the best Oregon's played all season. I think it would be really hard to argue. I that. think
0: you look at this team and this season and you look at it and say, okay, at the beginning of the year, there are a couple games that you absolutely have to win if you're Oregon to have a successful season. The first one is probably Oregon State. Check. Yeah. You beat the Beavers. The second one is Washington, your next biggest rival, or you could argue it's your biggest rival. And more importantly, it's the school that you're competing against the most within the conference division to win the game, you know, to win the North. And that's the Huskies. You beat the Huskies. And your next one is you want to beat Chip Kelly because he's the former head coach at Oregon. There's gonna be that stigma over Crystal Ball and, and for whoever coaches at Oregon, whether it's Crystal Ball or not, that until you get to a Rose Bowl, until you get to a college football playoff, you're going to be compared to, well, you're not Chip Kelly. You're not doing what Chip Kelly did. And you, and one of the ways to end that is to beat him mm-hmm. head to head. So you, you beat UCLA, you beat Chip Kelly, you beat the Huskies, you beat uh, your rival, Oregon State. And then, like you said, you also, on top of that, beat two other bowl-eligible teams. One is the uh, California Golden Bears, and that was a pretty – it was a back-and-forth game, but Oregon was in pretty much control. I mean, it, it, it's a borderline blowout game. And it felt insignificant at the time. Yeah, it,
1: it really felt like, oh, Oregon ended its road-losing streak. Cal stinks, so who really cares? And now you look up and Cal might be playing as good a football as anyone. The exactly.
0: And then you also beat, at home, uh, another bowl-eligible team in Arizona State that was – one win away from playing in the Pac-12 South uh, playing in the pac Championship game in place of Utah because they beat the Utes. So I think you've got you've got a road win that you can tip your hat on, and, and Cal. You've got two really impressive home wins against Stanford, against Washington, and also against Arizona State. Um, in terms of marquee games, teams. Yeah. Not the the Arizona State win was not an impressive way to win, but. It's a good team, and then and then you've got uh, a game where you beat the Huskies and you you beat the Beavers, you beat Chip Kelly, and you say that at the beginning of the year eight and four, you beat those three teams. Yeah, you're probably going to take that, but I think Duck Fan and Oregon staff and players probably got a little disappointed felt a little disappointed because. Early October, this team was ranked 11th in the country. They had one loss. They were going into a road game with College Game Day, coming to Pullman uh, to basically say, hey, we, we think Washington State and Oregon are going to be two of the best teams in the conference. And Oregon had a chance to you know, put themselves in the top ten, put themselves in the college football playoff discussion. They laid a dud, and they got blown out at Washington State. But then the next week, you come back, and you regroup, and you tell yourself, hey, It's one loss, doesn't make the season. We're out of the college football playoff hunt, but we're still alive in the in the Rose Bowl hunt. We can still compete and win a conference championship. And that Arizona game the following week is is probably what's going to put this season to a taste of a little bit of sourness is because then they go down to Arizona and they get absolutely boat raced. They had no, they didn't deserve to be on the same field as Arizona. And the wild, the Wildcats didn't finish bowl eligible. They went five and seven, uh, They won a couple games late in the year, but they were clearly a step below the bowl-eligible teams, and Oregon got boat raced. And that's going to be, I think, the game that more so than the Stanford loss, that you let a game get away from yourself that you shouldn't have, and the way that they lost was just really Um, bad. I was
1: going to say, I think it's the way they lost that game – The Washington State and the Utah game, you saw a lot of fight. Both those games, Oregon lays a dud. I mean, we should mention, and and this is not anything shocking if you follow this team, I mean, I think the most frustrating thing all season was there were three consecutive road games that Oregon literally no-showed in the first quarter, especially offensively. Nothing to show for it. No points. Hardly any first downs. Hardly any yards gained. I mean, really, really rough. I mean, that first drive in Pullman where they couldn't get a snap off. They had snaps going over Herbert's head. There were guys moving. There were all sorts of problems. That was as as low as you can get, especially after beating Washington in the previous game. And so, yeah, I I agree. I think the thing that really probably bums out Oregon fans and probably bums out the staff and players as well is that there were three games there on the road where Oregon just didn't show up to start the game. And they just weren't prepared to play. They just got completely, you know, just dominated up front. You then saw in the second half against Washington State and Utah, pretty valiant comeback. Utah, obviously, they took the lead there in the fourth quarter before Utah scored again to, 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 to ice it. Um, and then against Washington State, they were one scoring drive short of, of tying the football game and maybe making things interesting. But that, that Arizona game, it was just a complete no-show, um, all the way through. And things never got interesting. Arizona dominated in every aspect of the game where they couldn't run the ball. They could hardly throw the football. Arizona ran and threw the football successfully. There were all sorts of issues all over the field. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, just, just a really, this kind of how I would summarize the season: is they won one more game than last year. They beat their two biggest rivals. They have a chance to win a bowl game and win nine games for the first time in a handful of years. All of that gets the program at least headed in the right direction. I think the trajectory is pretty good when you consider the number of guys that return, and we should, you know, just we'll talk about it in a minute here. But a lot of the players that were making big plays and a big part of the, the, the win over in the Civil War. We're freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, we'll yep. so be back on next year's team. And then you toss them at, obviously, that, that fourth-ranked recruiting class, and you go, the next couple of seasons here, the ceiling seems really, really high.
0: You look at – it's a great point by you know how many guys that were freshmen or, or sophomores or juniors in that Civil War game making big plays for Oregon. And I think everything comes back to what will be the status of Justin Herbert. Does he come back – to school, If he does, I think this team is probably going to be ranked in the top 15. I think you can make a case for top 10, but I don't think with their road woes and the depth issues that they have at certain positions, even with this recruiting class, if they all show up, even with that group, I still think this team's going to have some question marks. I think they're going to be in that discussion. They're going to be in in that hunt for the college football playoff. But I don't think you can you can safely say, "Hey, you know what? These guys are going to come in. They're going to fill holes, and, and Oregon's going to be really good. They're going to be a top ten team, you know, ahead of the season." You, you can't definitively say that because look, when you're going to say, "Oh well, how how can that be? They've got you know four star receivers coming in. They're going to help everything." They signed two four-star receivers, three four-star receivers. And they got no production from any of them in 2018. Isaiah Crocker didn't play a game. Brian Addison played in three. I think three games had one catch. He has one catch. We played four because he played in Civil War. And then Jalen Hall didn't even show up on campus and is in jail. And J.J. Crocker, a three-star receiver, he hasn't played Spencer Webb, a four-star tight end, a guy that me, myself, was expecting big things from as a true freshman. He played in three games yeah. for Oregon and didn't register one catch. Um, so you've – I think you need to take a step back with the idea that all of a sudden you're going to have these guys come in and they're going to dominate and – or, you know – Maybe one does. Maybe maybe two of them sees the field and contributes. Maybe Crocker and Addison, maybe they make big big leaps from their freshman year to their redshirt freshman year next season. Um, But I don't think you can come out here and say today that Oregon's going to just all of a sudden become a top five team or a top ten team, even with Justin Herbert at the helm, and they're going to be just you know blowing people out like they were in 2014. Offensively, defensively, they've also got their issues as well, depth-wise, and um, they need linebacker help, especially. They need, I mean, that that was the thing going into the year. We felt like, I think after spring, we were kind of like, hey, you know what? Maybe these guys are are better than we were anticipated. But MJ Cunningham really didn't play. Andrew Johnson was not healthy and could not play this season. Um, Adrian Jackson seemed to really fade off as the year went on um he had a a good start to the year and i think he had a solid year but i don't think you can come out here and say that he's going to be the star guy next season for oregon definitively um they've got their depth issues at at linebacker as well and you know so they've got some holes they're not a perfect team but i think the ceiling is there though for them to be in the college football playoff discussion but not the beginning of the year
1: and part of what that That conversation will be framed around how Oregon does in its bowl game. I think it's going to be different. Let's say Oregon plays in the Hall of the Bowl. And let's say they win that game over a a really solid Big Ten team. Because it's going to be a Big Ten team, right? Isn't that the draw? Yeah. Let's Let's say they beat, I don't know, Northwestern or Iowa or something like that by three touchdowns. And it's really impressive. And people are like, hey, this Oregon team's really good. A lot of these guys come back. I think that may bump them up a little bit. As opposed to, say, they go and they lose to one of those teams decisively, and then there's a lot of like, well, the Pac-12 stinks; they can't compete. And I do also think that just how the Pac-12 does in general will it will also impact maybe not Oregon's ranking, but just sort of national perception in terms of those conversations, because the Pac-12 has shown for a second consecutive year they really can't compete with the the top teams, you know, in, you know, in non-conference games. There's not a Pac-12 team that's even in the really in the conversation at all right now for the College Football Playoff, and obviously. Um, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty of it, and so I think that will play a role. Certainly, Oregon is a team that, that has the pieces, and I, I, I want to just really quickly, I, I think you have to be very encouraged and excited by the play of C.J. Verdell and Travis Dye to finish this season. I, I posted this earlier uh, on the weekend here, but both of those guys played really, really well at the end of the conference season. Um, three consecutive games where they, they were both playing at a, at a very high level, um, and, and, and honestly, this is something that you you have to like to see from this running game because it, it was very up and down. I got the splits here. The combination of Verdell and Die in the first three games they averaged 500. This isn't conference play. 530 yards, four touchdowns. That's pretty good in, in three games. If you think about that to combine between the two. In the next four games, they averaged just 284 yards and one touchdown, and then the last two, 561 and seven touchdowns. So it was a roller coaster, but the last two games in particular. Um, wins over Arizona State and Oregon State. Oregon really was able to ride those two guys to success. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see because it's worth noting Oregon brings back Darren Felix who's banged up for most of this year. Oregon also has uh, a number of high, you know, highly rated freshman running backs that will be coming in next year. Um, but with these two guys, I think you have a backfield probably for the future that you have to be pretty encouraged by. You have to be pretty excited by the potential of these two guys because Dye they almost
0: was, ran for 1,700 yards combined. They almost didn't die, and they're probably going to after the
1: bull game. And yeah. die is a guy who physically, I, I would say, probably isn't even scratching the surface yet. I mean, I think he can put on 5 to 15, five to 10 more pounds probably and still run at a high level. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't physically – he's not physically imposing at all, really. He no. doesn't look like a powerful running back, which obviously C.J. Burdell is because he's a big, sturdy kid. Um, but – I think Travis Dye in particular, you saw some, he's got great vision, he's got really good feet, he's got a great spin move, had a couple of nice uh, cutbacks, got pretty strong speed, you know, pretty good speed, I'm not sure he's the fastest guy on the field, but these are guys that Oregon can really build around, and you talk about Mario Cristobal wanted to establish the run, they now have two guys I think pretty clearly that they're confident they can do that with, and so... It'll be very interesting to see, obviously this is over the next 12 months, but how these guys progress and how this running game progresses, because I would think in 2019, that's once again going to be kind of the focal point of the offense. Yeah, you look
0: at this group, and Verdell finishes with 975 yards and 10 touchdowns. Uh, Obviously, four of that came against Oregon State, so he he went into that game just over 800 yards, and um, he finished in, in six touchdowns, but he had... He finishes with 10 touchdowns on the regular season. Wouldn't be surprised if he maybe adds one or two more in the bowl game. He also is a very underrated player in the passing game for Oregon. He he finished the, the year third on the team in receptions with 25. He had 312 yards receiving, uh, two more touchdown catches, and you know, one of those came against Oregon State for for a fifth touchdown in that game. Um Die and Verdell, I think, are going to be a really good complement. And Verdell is kind of the power back. I think Die is kind of the all-purpose, you know, speed guy. But Die can run between the tackles just as much as well, – And I think at, at, Verdell is a great pass. I mean,
1: yeah. I, I, we spoke about this, I think, off air yesterday before we were doing our, our, our radio show, which you guys – should, we should encourage people to <laughs> listen to our radio show. We have it every Sunday, except for not this upcoming Sunday on, yes. uh, on KORE 1050 ninety-five-seven in Eugene. We are Fox Sports. Did I do that right? Fox
0: Sports, Eugene. Okay, well, I got close.
1: Yeah. Anyways, but uh, we were talking about off air. I, I actually think Verdell's ceiling, you know, and, and, and it probably won't be at Oregon because I think they're going to utilize him the way they do now, but I think he could be a great NFL running back in kind of a Darren Sproles role out of the backfield. I think he's really good in pass protection, and, and you see him. He's a very capable receiver, and he's really good in the open field, so I, I think there's a, a high ceiling for him in that role. And, and again, I, I like this backfield. And you talked about it earlier, it, to me it comes down to what happens with Justin Herbert for this offense next year. Is, does he come back? And, and then, you know, and we should we should probably talk about what do we think he's going to do um, even for this bowl game. I mean, do you think he's going to be, uh, elig- you know, not, obviously he's eligible to play. Do you think he's going to be ready to play? Um, nothing definitive, but that, that could be a like, humongous role in terms of how they finish this season is whether or not he's available because, you know, for better or for worse, probably for worse, Braxton Burmeister is no threat at all to throw the football. It wasn't on set, on Friday, and, um, you know, I don't want to b- belabor the point too much, but um, that two-point conversion that pass attempt was really ugly, didn't look good. They didn't really try to throw with them. I assume if they were in a bowl situation, it would probably be similar. Um, so, you know, you have to really wonder about what the implications for Oregon's success, not only in the next season should Justin Herbert determine that he wants to come back, or for this bowl game if he's able to come back because these, you know that that has a huge role. We know what Oregon looks like with Justin Herbert and without, fortunately the second half of the Oregon State game without Justin Herbert looked pretty darn good and that's just because Oregon State couldn't stop the run. So I think that, that the, the Justin Herbert is going to be the focal point as he has been basically since his freshman season of this team's success and there's now question marks about the short-term availability and then the long-term availability of Oregon's star quarterback and I think those are going to be questions that you know, people are going to have up until there's anything definitive announced.
0: I think Christopher was asked, does he expect if healthy the hurt for Herbert to play, and his response was, why wouldn't he? Right. Um, and it was, and it wasn't like a aggressive back forth. It was like, are you you're asking that question seriously? Like, why wouldn't he play? Um, so I, I think Oregon's expecting him to play if healthy. I think it would shock me, Herbert, to pull himself out of it. But is that, the, is that the right decision? I don't know. If he's going to go pro, he shouldn't play in this game. If, if, if he's going to play, if he's going to come back to Oregon, you, you can play in this game. Um, you know, unless there's risk of further injuring yourself and it being a long-term injury. Um, that's the thing you don't want regardless of what happens, if he goes pro or not. But I think it's safe to say that Herbert will play if healthy. Um, and I think he should come back. I do too. Um, I, I, I think if he's going to go in the, in the top 10, he probably should go pro. But I'm not sold now that he is a top 10 quarterback because he's had some games late in the year where he's just been playing bad. And... I know that may be sacrilegious to say, but go watch the second half of the Arizona State game. He was not very good in that one. Uh, he was not very good in Arizona. He was not very good in Washington State. And neither of those defenses were all that impressive this season. Um, he's, he's He seems to lock in on his first target. And then if that guy's not open, he immediately reverts to Dylan Mitchell. And sometimes Mitchell <laughs> is the first target. Uh sometimes Mitchell's not open when he throws it to him. And and then yeah, and then there's all I was just gonna say that there's been there's been multiple passes where he's either been picked off or it's almost been intercepted where it's clear as day that guy's not open and he forces it anyways to make a, to make try and make a big play. Um but on the flip side it's how much better is he going to get if he comes back for his senior season? Um that's gonna be look the, that's gonna be the stigma for for Oregon, is recruiting is half the battle. We we know that. And it's it's probably the first battle you need to win to be able to elevate your program and compete for conference championships. Because if you don't have good players, it's incredibly hard to compete every year for, for conference championships and get into the playoff. And you won't get to the playoff on a regular basis if you don't recruit some of the best players in the country. Oregon is now doing that. But just getting the good players here isn't automatically going to get you into the college football playoff. It's not going to win you conference championships. It's developing that that talent once they get to Eugene and making sure that when they leave, they're significantly better than when they arrived. You look at USC, that's the perfect example. They recruit, like, they are, they are the off-season champion almost every single year in the conference, and almost every single year in the country, they're one of the three or four best recruiting schools ever. But, their on-field success does not correlate with their recruiting success because for the lack of a decade, they have been terrible at developing talent. There's been a lot of guys, I mean, our USC site has wrote a story recently that said that a lot of players at USC said they learned more and got significantly better in their first year in the NFL than any years that they did that they spent at USC. And so that's going to be Oregon's, Next step, and it's going to be kind of, fair or not, the question for Mario Cristobal and Jim Levitt, the defensive coordinator, and Marcus Arroyo, the offensive coordinator, is can you guys recruit at a high level? Yes. Now can you turn those guys at every position into better players? And for Herbert, that's going to be his question. Do I get significantly better coming back to school a senior year, or could I get better going pro?
1: You're right. I think another thing that factors into the decision here, or and it's, it's always interesting for people like us to be talking about decisions that we're not making, and, that, and there's probably a full checklist of things that we're not even considering, and we're kind of boiling it down to a couple of things. I think another thing that factors into this is where does he actually get drafted if he does go pro this year, um, and that's interesting for a lot of reasons. Will he be the first quarterback taken still? Maybe, maybe not, and you look at right now I'm just looking at the NFL standings as they're currently constructed and I don't think any of the top 4 or 5 picks in the 4 or 5 teams in the draft would take a quarterback. I don't think the Oakland Raiders are going to take a quarterback. I don't think the 49ers would take a quarterback. I don't think the Cardinals would take a quarterback. I don't think the Jets would take a quarterback. I think the Jaguars and the Giants would take quarterbacks. I don't think the Bills would take a quarterback. I don't know if the Bucks would take a quarterback. I don't think the Falcons, the Browns, the Packers would take quarterbacks. Um, Yeah, how far is he going to fall? I mean, you just go down this list here, There, there there is a little bit of that, and then you keep going, the Broncos would take a quarterback, the Bengals maybe take a quarterback, the Eagles certainly don't take a quarterback, the Dolphins would take a quarterback, Tennessee would be an interesting one for a lot of reasons if you're an Oregon fan about what they would do there, imagining if that situation happens, which I don't think, because Tennessee's currently right in the middle of the NFL standings, but that's, I mean, I don't think he would be the top fourth pick if he's not... If other teams decide they like Will Greer a little bit more, or somebody else comes out, and there's you know there's other quarterbacks, if he falls past the Jaguars and the Giants, he could theoretically fall into the middle of the first round. Maybe he falls out of the first round. I mean that's just, and that's probably being a, a little extreme in terms of if he falls that far, because I think he's talented enough to be higher than that, but. Like I said, you, I just ran through the, dra- the bottom right now of the NFL standings, and the first four teams I don't think take a quarterback. I think teams five and six, the Jaguars and the Giants, probably do. Um, but after that, it's pretty wide open. There's a bunch of teams out there that just is – I mean, that's what happens. These teams are really bad consistently, and they take quarterbacks, and if the team isn't, if the quarterback pick doesn't work out for right them, well, they end up in the same area right now. There's a bunch of teams that have quarterbacks that are in their first, second, or third years that aren't going to take Justin Herbert. If they have the fourth overall pick, they're going to choose to build – you know, offensive line, they're going to choose to take receivers, defensive players. So that's another thing that factors into it. And obviously there's a ton of factors into these type of decisions, you know, for a guy like Justin Herbert, does he want to put, is it, is it a priority to play with his brother? Is it a priority to stay in Eugene where he's from and, and stick it out? Is it, is it an unfinished business? Does he, you know, prioritize playing and, and with his teammates again for another year? Does, is academics such a, you know, an important thing where he needs, he wants to come back for, you know, and, and finish that up and get that thing, you know, finished up. So there's a, there's a ton of things to consider. Um, for him, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens. But Oregon's season um, is, is going to be, you know, Oregon next year is going to be largely dependent upon that. And here's a question for you, Matt. If Justin Herbert does determine that it's in his, his best interest to go pro, does Oregon go and seek out another quarterback? Because I think that has to be something they look into, because currently, as the roster is constructed, they would have Braxton Burmaster back. For his junior or sophomore year. Burmaster. (laughs) That's his new nickname. I just gave him that one. Braxton Burmaster. He can keep that. Uh, Braxton Burmeister and Tyler Shuck will be back for their potentially both sophomore and junior seasons. I don't know. It would be weird depending upon how the redshirt works out because they're still not. Both guys
0: are still eligible to redshirt. So if if that's the case, Burmeister is a sophomore and Shuck is a freshman. But if. One of them plays. It's
1: also possible one of them has to play in the ball game because Herbert doesn't play, and so that's sure. really interesting. But uh anyway, so those guys are back, and then you have and you have uh, Cal Millen who would be coming in as a true freshman. So you basically have two quarterbacks that are complete unknowns in the divisional level, and Shuck and, and Millen, and then you have permeister who is pretty much who he is at this point. And uh, not to be critical, but he can't really throw the football competitively. I think if you're Oregon, you go either you really love Shuck and Millen, or you go. We probably should go find another quarterback and it's kinda of late in the recruiting circles to try to do this because all the top quarterbacks are basically off the board.
0: Well, this is the this is the ace that Mark Cristobal holds in his back pocket. Is it's more than likely going to happen that Jalen Hurts from Alabama is gonna graduate transfer and will have one year of college eligibility left after this season. Uh I believe he's already graduated or he's on track to graduate this December. Um, Christopher is tied with him. Saban has even gone out and said that Jalen Hurts has to think about transferring because if he wants to play, he's probably not going to do it at Alabama because Tua's there. And uh, he's a guy that Ball is familiar with. We've already seen that play out once with Dallas Wormack, Basically losing his job because of injury at Alabama and yep. wanting to play, you know, he then goes and, and transfers to Oregon and starts every game this he season. He started
1: every game this year and obviously was banged up. He and Kaepernick kind of rotated, but I do think he—I think he started every game. Let me look—I on I'll look that up there.
0: And so I, I think if you're Oregon and Herbert goes, that's your first call that you make. If Jalen Hurts does indeed transfer, um, that's the school that. And you yes, look
1: sorry, at Warmack didn't
0: Sorry. Yes, yeah. uh, that's the school that you look at, or that's the guy you go and say, "Hey, look, we have an opening. We need a we need a veteran guy." You kind of know our offense already because they're doing similar stuff that Alabama's doing. We have a teammate along the offensive line that you have a connection with in Warmack. We have a coach that you have a connection with in Crystal Ball, and that gives us another year to continue to groom. A Shuck, a Burmeister, and a Kale Millen, and oh, by the way, it doesn't scare away DJ Ukelele. DJ ukulele you, That's not his name. <laughs> uh, is, it, is it better nickname than Brent than Braxton <laughs> Bassmaster? <laughs> of yes. Uh, but DJ from the 2020 class, who's probably going to end up being the number one player in the country when all's said and done, uh, doesn't scare him away either because. Hurts would be gone by the time DJ enrolls at Oregon. So, I think that's the move you make first yeah. is can we get Jalen Hurts? Maybe Kelly Bryant from Clemson. He's out there as well looking for a, a, a an option for a fifth year somewhere. You know, those are two two names that you would go out and and check and and see if they fit and see if they are interested in you. Um I think there's options out there, but then if neither of those guys come, then yeah, you're probably in a really tough spot because you're going to have to roll with somebody who's unproven. And, look, you've got a very difficult schedule next year. You play right. Auburn to open the year in Dallas. You have to go to Washington. You have to go to Washington uh, – Stanford. You have to go – USC. USC. Yeah. Uh, you also have to go to Arizona State. And I believe you also have to go – I think it's it. – I think there's
1: just four Pac-12 road games. Yes, that's
0: right. There's only four Pac-12 But –
1: you still,
0: still, still very
1: that's really that's, that's the murderer's row.
0: I mean that's a very very difficult schedule for Oregon to, to be playing in next season, and then to do that with a quarterback that you basically know nothing about going into the year. Scary times.
1: It would be quite the opening game in Dallas, I believe, against Auburn <laughs> If you play the place to, to to make a debut as a as a starting quarterback. There's no question about that. And yeah, the schedule is next year is the schedule where Justin Herbert's back and and they get. Big squared away. He talks about the receiving game. I don't think that, I don't think the passing attack gets any better unless Jill Mitchell comes back and they find other people that can step in. Because I think one of the things, I wrote a story on the site, um, on Sunday uh, about kind of looking through the depth, the depth chart from the first in spring, the first in the fall, and then the one we had, um, for the Civil War. And the thing that really stood out was nobody stepped up at receiver. It was basically the same four guys at the top of the depth chart from start to middle to finish. And it never changed. And that to me is somewhat of an indictment on that receiving core, some of the indictment on the coaches for not getting anybody out of that group to come up and be better. And, and we talked about earlier, they need they need that because, Justin Herbert or not, they're going to need some receivers to step up and help this offense next year. And if Justin Herbert's back and they get more out of that passing game, this is a schedule that lines up for college football playoff, to be honest with you, because it, it is a challenging schedule with tough, tough games away from us. I mean, you probably would have to say... The five most difficult games on the schedule are away from us. I think the only of the games that would maybe factor in there would be, we don't know how good Washington State's going to be, and we don't know how good Cal's going to be, but those are home games. Everything else is on the road, um, and that's going to be a schedule that is very challenging for Justin Herbert to, to, to navigate through, but even more na- uh, difficult if it's Raxon Burmist or Tyler Shuck or uh, Kale Millen or, or quarterback question mark or quarterback right. X, whoever that ends up being. Um and so, yeah, that's a, I, you, that quarterback situation is absolutely integral, and that wide receiver position is also absolutely integral in terms of finding out solutions there. Because I think you look at it and you feel like, hey, we've got good tight end depth. The guy we thought was the best guy in the season, he didn't even play all year, yeah. Cam McCormick. You got two great, two running backs that are developing that are playing really good at the end of the year. The offensive line could lose a couple guys if they wanted to go pro, but there's a chance all these guys come back, and then you have Penae Sewell healthy again. Stephen Jones probably can slide in somewhere. And then defensively, at least you have Jordan Scott at nose guard. You probably have Troy Dye in the middle of the defense. You've got those two young corners. You've got, uh, a, I think, a, a star in the making and Javon Holland at safety. There's a lot of nice pieces there, but I think it all comes down to, for me, quarterback and wide receiver. And those are the positions that have to be have to be improved upon. There's no way around it. If you don't get better or you're not at least the same at those spots, you're in trouble next year.
0: And then lastly, before we wrap up this podcast, it's kind of, look, Duck fans got spoiled under Rich Brooks, Mike Velotti Chip Kelly, and then towards the early part of Mark Helfrich's career at Oregon that there wasn't a lot of movement with assistant coaches. And in today's day and age of college football, that's the rarity. That's not the norm. You don't see continuity with every staff member staying on for a decade or even half a decade. There always is going to be some kind of – change in today's day and age of college football and it's very difficult to keep your staff fully intact year in after year in. And I think it's probably a sign that if if your coaches are leaving, it's probably a good thing because you're doing well and people want a piece of what you're doing and they want to replicate that. And if no one's coming after your coaches, just like in the NFL, if no one's coming after your players, you're not very good. And I think at the end, that kind of bit Oregon a little bit. And there's going to be the question this year of, does Oregon lose anybody on their assistant coaching staff? Uh, Ball's not going anywhere. I don't think it's safe to say. <laughs> uh, but we've seen Jim Levitt tied to Colorado. And now most recently, we've seen him tied to Texas Tech. Could he leave to be a head coach at one of those two schools? We know Marcus Arroyo has been open and honest and on the record, saying he wants to be a head coach at some point, could he be plucked away by some school? You know, potentially San Jose State could open up, and that's his alma mater. Would he? Would that be a big enough pull to pull him away from Oregon? Keith Hayward, Oregon's other co- defensive coordinator and safeties coach, ace recruiter. He's also gone on record. He wants to be a D coordinator. He wants to be a head coach. What happens there? Um, I, I think that's going to be one of the bigger questions going into this offseason season. Is does Oregon lose anybody on their staff? And will Mario Cristobal have to go out and hire somebody else to replace them?
1: And that, you know, and the thing that I think that you talk about these coordinators is that they're heavily obviously involved in the offense and the defense, but they're also become pretty close with some of the other assistant coaches. And it could be one of those uh, one of those domino effects where, you know, either Roy or, or Levitt leaves and they end up taking some assistant coaches with you. And if you're an Oregon fan – um, it, it that could potentially pose problems on the recruiting front. I mean, I think you'd hate to have any part of this fourth-ranked recruiting class fall apart. Um, I think obviously Dante Williams and and I mean and Keith Hayward are are very integral for a lot of these Southern California guys. Marcus Arroyo has as has, you know he played a big role as well in, in a lot of these recruitments. Court Dennison, um, who works directly with Jim Levitt, has been huge as well. So there's there's a lot of a lot of things you have to consider when you hear about these things. I think it's also worth mentioning that nothing really definitive has come out. There's there's not there's no report of oh Jim Lovett will be the the coach at X yeah. Y or Z. There's just been these kind of preliminary reports, and this happens every offseason. These you know the top tier coordinators, the top tier head coaches that are younger guys at smaller schools are going to be mentioned with whatever the, the whatever 13 or 14 good jobs that open up, if it's you know or maybe it's five or six. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. And I don't think you start worrying too much about this stuff until you start seeing things get a little bit more scary and there's actual official meetings taking place or contracts off- offers being, you know, made. There are flights to certain parts of the country being made. Um, obviously if you're an Oregon fan, you're familiar with a lot of this stuff from the last couple of years with Willie Taggart and, and, and more recently with Mario Cristobal in terms of the, the process of hiring a new head coach. But, uh, I, I think you just have to be. You know, aware this is what's going to happen. Like you said, every off season when you have high quality assistant coaches, is that the reality is, is they're not going to stay here for the entirety of their contract, and some of them aren't going to stay here for more than a couple of years. And so it it is about maximizing what you're able to do and trying to keep uh, it it, it together as good as possible. And I'm sure Coach Cristobal and and Rob Mullins have a list of uh, of candidates that they're interested in looking at at every single position. You know, at every single position if it does open up because. You have to have your Rolodex ready because that's just the reality of how college football operates now.
0: Watch to, to monitor from off-the-field stuff for Oregon. And then uh, as we wait another week, we'll find out Oregon's bowl. Uh, Eric and I will do a podcast on Monday kind of previewing our first spots on that game. Uh, more than likely, it's going to be the Holiday Bowl or the Red Box Bowl or the Sun Bowl, one of those three options all played on New Year's Eve. Um, I think all in
1: much warmer places.
0: All in much warmer places. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a definitive, if you're Oregon and if you're an Oregon fan, you do not want to go to the Sun Bowl. Um, it's in El Paso. It's the farthest distance away from Eugene. Hardest to get to. Um, if you're Oregon, you probably would prefer the Holiday Bowl first and then the Red Box Bowl, Holiday Bowl being played in San, warm and sunny San Diego. A lot of Duck fans will travel down to that one. Ducks haven't been there since what 08. Yeah, uh 10 And years. and then the Red Box Bowl, which Oregon has never been in, is played in San Francisco, which is probably the second biggest hub of alumni for Oregon outside of the state of Oregon. And then uh, it's an easy drive for Duck fan who wants to make the trip from Eugene or from Portland. They can fly down or they can drive down. It's easy to get to. Uh, and both those games are played on the 31st as well. So probably more than likely one of those. Three games is where Oregon's going to be playing. Very slim outside chance, the Alamo Bowl. Very slim outside chance, the Vegas Bowl. But uh, more than likely, Holiday Bowl, Red Box Bowl, or Sun Bowl. Probably in that order, too. Um, and a lot of it's going to depend upon what the college football playoff does with Washington State. Yeah. Do they put them in a New Year's Six Bowl, which would then bump everybody up, and which basically guarantees Oregon into the Holiday Bowl or uh, – Do they leave them out? And then that's where things can get interesting. Uh, when we find out the bull, Eric and I will, we'll have our podcast. We'll break it down. We'll give our thoughts. Uh, and we'll also dive into some recruiting because, uh, recruiting signing day will be a couple days away, a couple weeks away from that point on as well. Uh, and until then, thanks for listening to the Duck Territory podcast. Go to, uh, iTunes or whatever podcast app you use to give us a review. We really appreciate it. And until our next podcast, thanks for listening. For Eric and myself, Matt Frame, we'll talk to you later.
1: so la vista.